Let's pray. Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we ask you to oversee our study or our discussion this morning and may it be encouragement and a way to edify all who are involved. We commit this meeting in our Messiah's name. Amen. Now that's to cover three topics in 45 minutes, which is going to be a bit difficult, so let's see how we do. But first of all, my personal testimony. Just to give you my family background, my father's side of the family was from Poland, and my grandfather was a part of the Hasidic movement. The Hasids are the very ultra-Orthodox Jews, and um, who demanded a very strict adherence to the Mosaic law, but also a very strict adherence to many of the rules and regulations passed down through rabbinic tradition. And our, my mother was from the Russian side of the border, and um, I'll uh, show you how we met and so on. But at any rate, my father was, uh, was a firstborn son being groomed for leadership, but that was interrupted on September the 1st, 1939, with the German invasion of Poland and the start of the Second World War. When the fighting finally ended, my father was able to escape into Russia. But when he got over the border, he was arrested for crossing the border legally. He was put on trial, and he was accused, and although he was Jewish, they accused him of being a Nazi spy, and shipped him out to a concentration camp into Siberia. We spent two years at hard labor from 39 to 41. Then, because when Hitler broke his covenant with Stalin and invaded the Soviet Union, the, Pol the Russian government was in need of the political support of the Polish government, now in exile in England. They requested that support, and the Polish government agreed, but they laid down certain conditions, one of which was the release of all Polish citizens out of Russian prisons. So for that reason, my father got released. For the same reason, a man named Menachem Bacon also got released. Menachem Bacon turned out became the Prime Minister of Israel. My father became a professional photographer in California, but that's a different story. Meanwhile, my mother was um, shipped to Siberia, and she had just turned into adulthood, needed to get some um, um, identification papers, and she needed some passport pictures, and my father had become a photographer, and that's what he practiced when he was released from prison. And so she heard about him, so she went to get a picture taken, and she got a picture taken, and I developed. I was born in 1943 during the war, and uh, this will help to explain a small segment of my accent. When World War II ended, those who were Polish citizens were allowed to return to Poland. Poland had become a communist country, and so my parents um, moved to Poland, and we spent about a year in Poland, which will help to explain a second segment of the accent. But towards the end of our time in Poland, the Jewish Passover arrived, and for the week, before Passover, our mothers began to, prepare, to bake the matzot, the special unleavened bread that we use for Passover. And during that week of preparations, a small three-year-old Roman Catholic boy disappeared. And the church leaders began spreading a rumor, a rumor they often spread before, in order for the Jews to make unleavened bread, we have to have the blood of a Christian. So accused of kidnapping this boy, you killing him in a form of ritual murder and using his blood to make unleavened bread, and then we got spread throughout the country. 
So on the first night of Passover, we began to sit down to observe the, the first Passover since uh, the Nazis were pushed out of Poland. And um, outside our ghetto and other Jewish ghettos around the country, Polish mobs were formed with the help of the Polish police. They began to raid the Jewish sectors. And, uh, once, and once again, Jews were killed in Jesus' name. Now, since the fourth century, 95% of all persecutions against the Jews were in the name what I call the three C's, the name of Christ, the name of the church, and the name of the cross. And so that's why a barrier developed in the Jewish mind between us and them, us are the Jews, and to them are these Christians who worship some God named Jesus, and, and they use that name to kill Jews, so the less we have to do with that, the better. And that's the context I first heard about Jesus. Not as my Messiah, not someone who came to die for my sins, always someone we end up dying for. And as these mobs were let in, they were let in with huge crosses, black robe priests uh, were leading them, and they would keep crying out the same line in Polish, you kill Christ, we'll kill you. And that's the context I first heard about Jesus. So, as a result, that barrier began to develop in my mind. The one good thing that came out of that riot was the work of the Israeli underground. And when they found out what had happened, they began to work out a scheme to try to get as many Jews out from Poland in a fixed period of time. And, uh, and so what we did was we had that period of time to go to, to cross the border. So my parents joined up with the Jews that made the same decision to leave, were told not to use any public transportation to avoid attracting attention, but simply take what we can carry in our own hands or arms we began to walk the many, many miles to the Polish border. We finally arrived and were stopped by the Polish border guards. We identified ourselves as Jews, so the Polish border guards took the rifles, put it behind their backs, the rest of the rice scoured, they went like so. And they'll pretend to look at the birds flying above the above and not pretend they cannot see us, and that's the way we got across the border. So, um, Later from the Israelis, we discovered how much it took to bribe these Polish border guards. What it took was American cigarettes. American cigarettes were highly valued in East Europe after the Second World War. And so for a carton of camels, for example, you can purchase the freedom of a family of Jews. And that's how we got out. So while smoking is bad for your health, it was good for mine. <laughs> And by the way, that was one day I did walk a mile for a camel. <laughs> for several hours, we were in this no man's land area between Poland and Czechoslovakia. The Israeli underground finally got us organized. They began to walk on foot across the width section of um, Czechoslovakia from the Polish border to the Austrian border. And a similar arrangement had been worked out with the, with the with the Czech border guards that would help us cross into Austria. But the day before actually scheduled to cross the border, the government of Czechoslovakia collapsed, the communists took over, the Czech border guards were removed and replaced by Russian border police that with whom no arrangements were made. And so that um, night we're told to stay in the forest, 
stay hidden, and they went into the border town, the village there, to investigate what the situation was, and what they found out was this. The, the Russian border guards were given orders to allow no one to cross the border except for Greeks. Greeks returning home from prisons are heading back for Greece. Only they could cross the border. And when they found this out, they came back to where we were hiding and ordered us to burn anything and everything that would in any shape, way, or form identify who and what we were. The birth certificates, uh, passports, identification papers all went up into smoke. The next morning, we were told to pose as Greeks. And posing as Greeks, we approached the Russians and the Czech, at the Czechoastrian border. Now, not one of us was a Greek. Now, one of us could speak a word of Greek, but neither could the Russians. <laughs> so through the subterfuge, we were able to cross the border. Everyone got across safely. Something went wrong at the last minute. One of the Israelis was, was killed, but that was the only casualty. So um, we were able to cross um, the border, posing as Greeks. So I find myself a very unique example of Romans 1.16. I was a Jew first, and for one day also a Greek. The American military police took over and got us to Austria and to what was then West Germany. Next five years, we spent living in special camps called displaced persons camps. And these camps were primarily Jewish camps of Jews who lost their um, national identity, any country identity. And we were moved from one camp to another over a five-year period. And those five years in Germany will explain the third segment of the accent you're listening to. Towards the end, uh, uh, we applied for immigration status for the USA, and, um, and there was a Lutheran pastor representing a Jewish ministry from New York City. His main responsibility was to give clothing to Jewish refugees, which we were, and that's when the first contact was made. We lived in this one camp, displaced persons camp, DP camp, for about a year, so he made several visits and talked to my parents, but I was not involved in the conversations, so I really don't know what they talked about. What I do know is that when he learned we applied for immigration status to the USA, he happened to have a magazine called The Chosen People. And the bottom part of the magazine had the New York headquarters address. He did not give my mother the whole magazine. She never knew what the group was. He simply tore the cover off and gave it to her and told her, when we come to America, look up the organization. They may be able to help. And all she understood was this was a Jewish group that will help immigrant Jews in the USA, which it was, but it was a little bit more than that. And by the time my mother found that out, it was too late in my case. So we finally got our immigration papers. We left Germany and settled in a Jewish neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. And Brooklyn will explain the rest of the accent you've been listening to. <laughs> it will, uh, will uh, explain most of it. But once we settled in a small apartment they provided, my mother took a subway ride into Manhattan to visit this Jewish ministry. And um, she couldn't speak English yet, and the day she visited them, nobody could speak Russian or Polish or Yiddish or German, all of which my mother spoke. All that got done that day was a name was taken down a 3 by 5 card. It was conveyed to her to be contacted some time later. And some time later, it turned out to be six years later. The follow-up program was a bit weak at this stage, so we heard nothing for six years. 
In that six-year period, I grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood of Brooklyn. I went to a public school, but the public school was in that Jewish neighborhood. 99% of everybody else in that school were Jewish kids. So um, that was my whole world for that six-year period. But, um, and as far as I know, I didn't run into any real believers. And in that case, in those cases, I wouldn't know the difference. Because uh, we tend to, growing up, we tend to use the term Gentile and Christian as being synonymous terms. So growing up, uh, I believed that Hitler, Mussolini, the Pope, Billy Graham, and the Dallas Cowboys were all Gentiles and all Christians. I turned the Dallas Cowboys for two reasons. Number one, I am a Dallas Cowboy fan. But secondly, among the Jewish people, the game of football is viewed to be purely as a Gentile game because it would not be very Jewish running around the field chasing after a pigskin. <laughs> but um, after the six-year period, they opened up a new branch, about a mile, mile and a half from where we're down living. And so somebody that's been saving these three by five, three by five cards handed out to the workers to go on visitation. And we visited the visitor inviting me to attend what they called a Jewish Christian meeting. When I first heard that term, this to me was a contradiction in terms because I grew up believing you the one or the other. For someone to claim to be both a Jew and a Christian meant he was probably a schizophrenic. <laughs> Two things at once. Well, I was curious enough to go. And so I sat down, I kind of sat in the back, and there was a small meeting called about half the size of this um, room right here. And the more they talked, the angrier I became. It did not really bother me here, a group of Jewish people talking about Jesus, because I was expecting that much from what I was told earlier. What really disturbed me that night is they were using the Hebrew Bible to do it with. Because um, I grew up believing we Jews had our Bible, the Hebrew Bible, that the Christians called the Old Testament. And the Christians had their own other Bible, the New Testament, and we knew that their Bible talked about this God named Jesus, but he wasn't supposed to be anywhere in my Bible. And, um, and, and they spent the whole evening proving this Jesus from my Bible and thought that took a lot of nerve. But the same person who first invited me could see uh, what was happening and realized um, this would not be a good time to try to share the four laws with me. So instead, they, um, the, the person that first came, uh, witnessed our house simply gave me a challenge to take a New Testament home, read it for myself, and see if, if um, Jesus didn't do what the Messiah was supposed to do. And I said, okay, I will do that. Not because I was open-minded. I was going to prove these schizophrenics wrong once and for all. So I went home and opened the New Testament, and what I thought I would read, and what I really was reading were two different things. What I thought I would read was about these big church edifices with stained glass windows, um, with um, black robe priests waving crosses, bowing down to statues, burning incense, and telling the people, now go out there and kill Jews in Jesus' name. That's what we saw those who claimed to be Christians doing in Poland, so we figured the same thing, that that is where the got the material from. But to my surprise, this was a very Jewish book, not so much different than the Jewish books I was required to read at that time in my life. Even the first sentence was very interesting. This is the generation of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. You cannot get more Jewish than that line is. 
as I continued to read, the Jewishness of the book became coming out more and more uh, obvious. And so when I, came, when I finished, I was pretty well convinced if he was not the Messiah, there wasn't going to be one. So I went back to the meeting hall, and this time I wasn't mad anymore. And I sat down with the same person. What we did that night is go from the Hebrew prophecy, Hebrew scriptures prophecy, to the New Testament, um, how Yeshua fulfilled it. And that night I became convinced and accepted Yeshua to be my Messiah and became a schizophrenic myself. <laughs> uh, nothing different happened after the first year, but then we left New York and moved into California. That's when my father's opposition to began to grow in its intensity. I was prohibited to, to um, read any part of the Bible, Old and New Testament. I was prohibited to go to any meeting, Jewish or non-Jewish. And two weeks, um, I'd say about a month before I graduated from high school. Well, before I began my final year of high school, my father completely quit speaking to me, wouldn't say one word. And about two, a month or two months before graduation, he sent me a message to my mother. He wouldn't talk to me himself. So my mother had to tell me that upon graduation, I would have to leave home. And he also requested that I leave the state of California. My father's business as a photographer was strictly within the Jewish community, doing, um, doing bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs in the Jewish synagogues, Jewish weddings and things of that nature. His concern was that word spread that I was a Jewish believer in Yeshua, then they would, um, that would interrupt his ability to make a living. I was no longer the only child anymore because in Germany, one brother and sister were born. In Brooklyn, another brother was born. And then in California, three more sisters were born. But they were born after I was expelled from home. Well, two things uh, happened during that time. I had a, a, a job as a janitor at a Lutheran church. I was able to save $120. That's, that's not a lot of money today. It was a lot of money back then. And then uh, I was coming, reading to Philippians, I came across the verse that says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. So I finished high school the very next day. I left uh, California, began going towards um, New York City and took about two weeks to cross the country. All I spent during that time was $17. Along the way, God began to provide a ride from one city to another, a meal from this place to that place, and so on. So I began to experience the Philippians' promise. When I arrived in New York, I, that summer I worked as a volunteer at a Messianic camp in upstate New York. And I was a volunteer work, so I didn't get any payment, but I was, uh, uh, but I was provided room and board, so the uh, summertime ended, I was down to only $20. I was accepted to begin training in a Christian liberal arts college. That would be a private school that run about $2,000 a year, which back then was a lot of money. This is the uh, late, um, early, 60, early 60s. And so I decided, to, uh, I came up with an idea. I thought it was such a very good idea, I informed God about this. I would delay going to school by a year, go down into the city, get a full-time job, and delay school by one year, but never received any real peace about this until I saw my need to start school right then and there and trust the Lord to provide the funding. So I went through the registration procedure, and then we, um, 
And as a result of the, uh, worked out the business office with this bill on my hand for $750 that would have to be paid within four months when the first semester ended. I remember walking down the court and simply praying, Lord, you wouldn't let me work a year first. You'll have to pay off this final of uh, the bill. And as the four months ended, not only did God pay off the entire $750 bill, but the college owed me money. <laughs> my roommate worked in the business office and he had to finalize all the accounts. He noticed that the college owed me money. So at the cafeteria that night, he came up to my table and said, boy, you really are Jewish, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but this went on for seven of my eight semesters. I would begin the semester in owing them money. The semester ended, ended with them owing me money. And uh, the eighth semester broke exactly even, so I got to um, graduate in 1966. Um, that's money only for tuition. The other things I would need money for things like for new textbooks every semester, clothing and things of that nature. I made a policy I maintain to this day. I never let anyone else know what my personal needs are. I don't ask people to pray for this need or for that need. Then they might um, um, see that they might be moved to fulfill my needs based upon sympathy, not based leading at the Lord. So for me, no one knew what my needs were. Yet the funds came in from people I have not met to this day, nor do I know how they heard about this uh, Jewish kid studying in New Jersey, but um, the funds came in. When my studies ended, I enrolled in a special course of studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. There would be a 14-month program, and they would um, run, uh, there had to be a prepaid payment, which was $2,400 for the 14-month program. And uh, I worked that summer, and all I was able to save was $800, so still $1,600 short. But about uh, two weeks before I had to board the plane for Israel, I received a letter from the U.S. government that I was going to be granted a, a, a not a loan, but an, a, a scholarship for $1,624. And that's not something I would have to pay back. This was 24 hours more than I really needed, but that's government bureaucracy for you. <laughs> and as a result, I, I had the money prepaid, and I had a great 14-month studies. My focus was on, on modern Hebrew, more so on historical geography of the land, by which I learned how to provide these tours for Israel and things of that nature. And uh, it was during, I was there that the Six-Day War broke out, and I got to see many of the events of the Six-Day War. When I finished my studies, uh, uh, two months after that war, I came back to the USA. I went through a Dallas seminary, and I'm going to cut something short because I need to move into some other subjects. But it was, uh, and uh, during my, and I was still single my first year, married between my first and second year. I'll come back to that momentarily. My wife and I felt that after I finished schooling, I would we like to go to Israel to for more ministry. So we graduated in 1971. We moved to Israel, able to spend um, two years there ministering. I was involved in the Messianic Assembly of Jerusalem. And it was during that year that we began just a small Bible institute, meeting three times a week. And that got the local Pharisees in our neighborhood a bit upset. And we only lived two or three blocks away from the ultra-Orthodox segment of Jerusalem. 
And so they began pressure upon the government and I was called in and told upon the ending of my visa I would have to leave the city and then I leave the country. And so that's um, forced us to leave in 1973. And they went back to the US and then for the next two years I worked as an editor for the same magazine that was given to my mother in Germany that led to my own salvation. And uh, eventually uh, we began Ariel Ministries. And Ariel Ministries uh, means, Ariel means the Lion of God. And we called that ministry based upon Yeshua, based upon Jesus being Ariel, the Lion of God. is called the Lion of Judah in the scriptures. And we began on two principles. First of all, to share the message of the Messiah with our Jewish people. And then secondly, to teach the scriptures from a specific Jewish frame of reference out of which the Bible came. And you'll experience more of this. I have a two-day seminar at this congregation in coming up in March. And so we'll deal with that more extensively at that point. But that's the focus of our ministry. And um, we especially emphasize the Jewish frame of reference, Jewish backgrounds of um, Jewish studies. And I'll say more about the ministry in March as well. I mentioned I met my wife, Miriam, or Marianne, who uh, uh, when I began quoting her, uh, quoting her when we first met, but I met, her, I met her seven years before the wedding. I began quoting her, but she was one very stubborn individual. And for, se and for seven years, she kept saying no, no, no. After seven years of courtship, she finally saw the light and agreed to the wedding. So I worked just as long for my wife as Jacob, my forefather, worked for his wife. <laughs> seven years. Now just before the ceremony that scared me a bit. It scared me because my wife had two sisters. <laughs> In a Jewish wedding system with finalized it, your best man takes a wine glass, you put it on your, by your foot and you smash the glass. At that point you're married, but until the smashing of the glass you can pull out of the wedding. The best man put the glass underneath by my foot. Um, I peeked through the veil to make sure it was the right sister. <laughs> and then I went ahead and smashed the glass. <laughs> now let me say a few things about the frame of reference by which we understand the Bible teaches. It's referred to as dispensationalism. And basically, this has to do with how God dispenses his economy, how God rules the world at different points of time. Because God did not have the same rule of life for all peoples for all time. So as you go through the scriptures, you find, the, uh, for example, different covenants. You have the Edenic covenant, followed by the Adamic covenant, followed by the Noahic covenant, and these were covenants made with the Gentile world. And then there were five specific Jewish covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, followed by the Mosaic covenant, followed by the land covenant, followed by the Davidic covenant, and finally the new covenant. And uh, as you go from covenant to covenant, certain provisions are repeated, certain provisions are discontinued, and certain provisions are brand new, never seen before. You see these three things happening. Some provisions are repeated, some provisions are discontinued, some provisions are brand new. That's when you know you're entering a new dispensation, a new rule of life. 
not a new way of getting saved. Salvation was always by grace through faith plus nothing. That was the principle. Everybody was always saved from grace through faith plus nothing. But what the difference is, the content of faith, what did you have to believe to be saved? And in uh, replacement theology, which is a theology that says that God replaced Israel with the church, they would claim that the content of faith was always the same. And so the content of our faith was the Messiah died for our sins, he was buried, rose again. That is the gospel we need to believe to be saved, but they claim that was the same gospel from Adam onward. They admit you cannot find it in scripture. In the writings they claim, we, need, we should not assume that only what's in scripture would be something they would know. And they, they may be, there may be other sources of, um, of uh, knowledge that they could gain what, the, what they have to believe to be saved. And just imagine, the very thing you have to believe to be saved was left out of all those Old Testament passages. But the, diff the issue is you have to believe what God had revealed up to that point of time. So what's the first prophecy about the Messiah, Genesis 3.15? And the prophecy is that a descendant of the woman that Satan tempted will someday come to defeat him. That was the gospel, that was the message people had to believe for salvation. And there were a number of messianic prophecies thereafter but the first time you have a prophecy about the Messiah's death is Psalm 22. But even that passage, written by David, doesn't say why he dies, only details how he will die. The first time you see a clear statement of the reason for Messiah's death was, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, you shall make his life for soul an offering for sin. That's the first time you see why he dies. So. The fact Messiah would die for sin wasn't revealed until Isaiah 53. So the content of faith simply was, what did you have to believe up to that point of time? And that point of time was how much God had revealed up to that point of time. And so these different eight covenants were not eight different ways of getting saved. They were simply rules of life for different periods of time. And just to give you one mundane example, from Adam to Noah, man was to be purely vegetarian. He couldn't eat meat. With the Noahic covenant, he could eat meat, no limitations. And chapter 9 says, every moving thing shall be food for you. In other words, if it moves, you can eat it. Enjoy. That never changed for Gentiles, but for the Jews, for the Mosaic law, this you can eat, this you cannot eat, this you can eat, you this you cannot eat, and with the New Covenant, all meats also became kosher. So that's simply different rules of life. But the content of salvation was always, was always the same way, by grace through faith plus nothing. Only difference, what did you have to believe? So in Isaiah 43, for example, what did people have to believe to be saved? Two things, number one, the God of Israel was the only God. If you believe that, that rules out polytheism and rules out idolatry. But secondly, that this God is the only Savior. That rules out trusting your own works for salvation. That's the content of faith. So when a Gentile believed that content of faith, he was given eternal life. The next question would be, how do I now live for the Gentile? He will live in accordance with the Adamic and Noahic covenants. When the Jew believed those two things, he was also saved. 
When he raised the question, how do we now live? The answer is you live in accordance with the Mosaic law. Six, not 10 commandments, 613 commandments. And if there is failure, then um, there's a blood sacrifice to cover that sin. And now we all have the same content of faith that Paul spells out in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. And that uh, content of faith is number one. Um, the Messiah died for our sins. Secondly, he was buried, the evidence of his death. And thirdly, he rose again on the third day. And that's what we have to believe and trust alone to receive eternal life. Now, if you ask the question, what makes one a dispensationalist involves three elements. Number one, a consistent interpretation, a consistent literal interpretation of the text of scripture, unless the scripture tells you otherwise. All theologies do interpret many parts of the Bible literally, but often they violate the consistency rule. So for example, when they teach Israel is the, the true Israel is the church, they, they don't, uh, this is rather selective because they've specified when God says nice things about Israel, that's really the church. When God says bad things about Israel, that's them Jews again. <laughs> it's a very convenient definition, but it's not a consistent. Because, for example, New Testament, the word Israel is found exactly 73 times. Not once is it used of the church or Gentile believers. It's used either of Jewish people in general or Jewish believers in particular, but never of the church, never of Gentiles. Israel is always Israel. And so what the uniqueness about dispensationalism is the consistent application of the literal interpretation of scripture. And this is uh, emphasis is, is on consistency. This doesn't rule out the Bible uses figures of speech. The Bible also uses figures of appearance it also talks about the sun rising, the sun setting, and astronomers also talk about the sun rising and the sun setting, though we know literally the sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't set, it's the earth turning. Um, but the, this is, but you keep the Bible within the same system, language of appearance, and so on. So if the text makes sense literally, don't symbolize it. And if it's a symbol, he'll tell you it's a symbol. So Daniel chapter 7, he sees a beast with seven horns and ten heads. He ten tells you it's not a real animal. The ten, uh, the ten heads represent this, the seven horns represent this, and so on. The text will tell you if something is used symbolically. And that's going to be very consistent. So number one, a consistent literal interpretation of the scripture. Secondly, is the... Um, the consistent distinction between Israel and the church. And it's a mistake to simply assume that the, that, that the church has become Israel when there's no passage of scripture that teaches it. And the consistent interpretation will understand when God says Israel, he means Israel. He means the Jewish people. When he talks about the church, I have one already. Thank you. <laughs> Um, he talks about the church, he means the church, and they should not be mixed. In the book of Acts, you have Israel and you have the church kept consistently distinct, and they're never mixed. And so the, um, when he goes to synagogue, 
he presents the gospel from those who believe. He pulls out the Jews and Gentiles and, invite, and then organizes a local church for this city or that city. But there's a consistent distinction between Israel and the church. And replacement theology always has to mar that distinction. Now, the third element is what is the ultimate purpose of God? And um, within our own circles, there's two basic views. One view is that the, the ultimate purpose of God is his own glory. Everything he does, he does to bring, bring glory to himself. And um, that is the overall unifying element of scripture. A second view from our circles is um, it's the kingdom principle and the unifying principle of the whole scripture is the kingdom of God concept. I can accept both of them. I don't think there's any real uh, problem with that. But in replacement theology, the key purpose of God is always just salvation of the elect. That's the key purpose of God. That's the unifying principle of scripture is this principle of, uh, of you know, is the principle of salvation. Now, in, in our uh, reading the Bible, that is one major purpose of God, but that's not the one unifying principle. For example, God has a program, a place for angels, but salvation wasn't part of it. God did not provide salvation for angels who fell, only for fallen humanity, but not for fallen angelanity. There's no such word, by the way, I made that up for this kind of study. But the, um, but uh, has no special purpose. So God, and God has many uh, purposes, the purpose of the universe, the purpose for the globe, and things of that nature. He has a purpose for Israel, has a purpose for the church, he has a purpose for the Gentiles. He has multi-purposes, unifying principle, all of these things will bring to his glory. And that's the basic principles of dispensationalism. When you listen to a critic of dispensationalism, he'll tell you things about dispensationalism that dispensation never even held. Never held that view. They have to corrupt what we believe and teach to make their own position look stronger when it's not really that strong. So that's the essence.